1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit Harry's.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE and by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to BraintreePayments.com culture. And by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest. what a long, strange trip we've totally ignored edition. It's Wednesday, July 15th, 2015. On today's show, Catastrophe is a British import sitcom. It's small, delicious, getting swoony reviews, and it's now streaming on Amazon. And then after 50 years, the Grateful Dead is finally saying a final goodbye. We check in with Slate's resident deadhead, John Swansberg. And finally, what is it like to have little more than ordinary talent, but to utterly refuse the ordinary life? we speak to Slate's own Leon Nafak about his wonderful new memoir, The Next, Next Level. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Welcome back, Julia. Hello.
2: Hi, Steve. How are you?
1: I'm very well. How are you? How have you been?
2: I'm great. I had a lovely vacation. Over my vacation, I went to see Taylor Swift play live at the Meadowlands. (laughs) You did not. Home of your beloved Jets, maybe. Where do they play? Do they play there? Not at the metal ends. Oh, damn, I wish she had besmirched the field of your heroes. Did
3: Tay Tay bring the house down?
2: Slate's culture section was well represented at the show.
1: (laughs) Okay, a uh, can of worms back on shelf, Dana.
3: Um... <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> oh, Steve, I, I would have bite. to tell you, Steve, I have to tell you since we're on the subject of Taylor Swift that one of my best friends who has some of the coolest taste in music I know completely agrees with you on Taylor Swift and scorns me for even tolerating her. So she, you, And you've won her over on the show with your arguments.
1: Dana, I think what you meant to say is that every friend you have with cool taste <laughs> agrees <laughs> with me. And, um, and joining us is Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey. Julia, I imagine we have some business uh, before we launch into the show.
2: No, we don't, actually. The only business was I was going to gloat about having gone to Taylor Swift.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's dig right in then. Um, Catastrophe is a British import sitcom now streaming on Amazon. It is created and written by its two stars, Rob Delaney and Sharon Horgan. The former is an American in London on business who has a steamy one-weeker with the latter, an Irish-born schoolteacher. Having returned to the States and fully prepared to have the affair disappear into a pleasant, wistful nothing, Rob receives a phone call out of the blue from Sharon. Let's listen to a clip.
4: Hey, so great to hear from you. I'm sorry that I haven't called, but I have some good news. I'm gonna be in London in April.
0: I'm pregnant.
5: Did you just say pregnant?
0: Yeah, I said I said pregnant. Do you want me to say it again? Pregnant. I'm-
5: I don't understand I mean
0: Well I think it's because because You know we had sex about 25 times in a week And you wore condom maybe twice Twice of those times Why did you let me do that? I don't know because I was drunk the first And even though I wasn't drunk Most of the other times there was a precedent there That you just took complete advantage of
4: What do you want to do? I
0: want to build a time machine out of your fucking carcass and go back and make it unhappen!
4: Do you want me to come over sooner?
0: No! Yeah. I don't know. I, just, I don't know what you do when you get pregnant by a stranger. I don't know the etiquette. I'm
4: not a stranger. I'm, I'm a familiar acquaintance. A, a friend who helped you make a mistake but will now help you figure it out, okay? Is your mom okay?
5: Huh? Oh. No. She's pregnant.
1: Dana, I think it's fair to say that this is a paper-thin premise. Why is what follows from it so delicious?
3: Very good question. I mean, I guess because of the writing and because maybe of the fact that the writing springs from these two people who are playing characters with their own names, like there's something about this show, Catastrophe, although it is about a situation that has been dramatized many, many times. And, you know, because it happens many, many times in real life, that's completely fresh. And I think it is because it feels like something crafted from the hands of these two people. Not that they're playing roles in a sitcom, but their a story is unfolding. And this show really grows on you as you watch it. I watched all six episodes. And by the time the sixth one came and I don't know when there'll be another batch. I was desperate, <laughs> desperate to, mm. to, to see what happens next.
1: Yeah, I was too. Um, Julia knocked up is the obvious precedent. There must be others. Is there something different about this? And did you love it as much as Dana and I did?
2: I thoroughly enjoyed it, although I had, and I loved many, many parts of it, although I had some nagging feeling that there's a style of, like, machismo in the relationship between the two main characters. Their relationship is full of bantering comedy, and they're always kind of putting each other down and insulting each other uh, in a very, like, uh, loving, high-spirited, let's-go-have-sex kind of way that didn't ring entirely true to me and seemed salvaged by the fact that you kind of know that these actors are playing versions of themselves, so maybe they really are such tough cookies. But they're both quite tough cookies. And I really enjoyed it and yet didn't totally believe the primary relationship. You guys didn't have any hints of that? Well,
3: their banter is highly stylized, but, but I think they have a connection. They have I mean, they have complete sort of sexual and actorly chemistry. To me, they seem to. But it is true that it's, it's stylized dialogue almost on the end of, I've only seen this a couple times, but that show You're the Worst, right? I mean, that show that's sort of about two people falling in love and showing each other very... Flagrantly, the kind of ugliest sides of their personality. So, even though these two basically seem like good people, decent people trying to get their way through a bad situation, they are pretty mean to each other.
2: Well, there's that. And I guess the other cons, you know, I mean, I, uh, Sharon Horgan is a revelation to me. I think she's incredible in this. And I think the episodes do a really good job of dramatizing some of the emotional ups and downs of pregnancy, which weirdly aren't dramatized that much. There's one episode I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that deals with the couple's concern about the potential risk of a child born with Down syndrome and the kind of risks and assessments and tests and waiting and decisions that can go around that, that's something that happens in every modern pregnancy. Like, every modern woman who gets pregnant in a developed world, like, has the option to do a set of tests where they understand the potential there and decide whether to do the test and what to do with the knowledge that comes of the test. Like, that's a huge moral Quandary that is almost never dramatized. And I thought that that episode in particular did just a beautiful job of making these characters seem rich and real and like they were Mm -hmm. grappling with these things in an interesting way. I guess, though, between the two of them, I think Sharon's character feels very specific and real, and the Rob character to me felt a little bit blank. Like he seems to have no angst or qualms or regrets. He's just, like, so Johnny stand-up. He's like, sure, I'll move from Boston to London and, like, help my 41-year-old one-night stand raise a child, kind of because I want a child and kind of because why not take a bet on this woman who I had a really fun week with. But it seems to throw his, like, career in utter disarray. He has no friends and he
3: just is kind of like, okay. Like, he seems so jolly about it. He, seems, you know he has like, so that? little angst. I mean, in addition to Rob Delaney being adorable and very funny and just seeming as if, again, this character is very much flowing from his own sort of extremely gynocentric weirdness, which if you follow him on Twitter, you've you know witnessed many times. He basically does sort of worship women in such a way that I could imagine him doing something so insane. But I sort of like the fact that in a TV world where everyone's job always has to be there, something that they're passionately good at and driven to do, and everybody has to be like Woody Harrelson, the driven detective, that he kind of has an alienating advertising mm-hmm. job that he doesn't care about and that he basically quits or sort of gets fired from because he's just more involved in this other aspect of his life. I liked that about that character.
1: I like that too. And what also what I like about the show, I mean, I like everything about the show, but at the heart of it is that it's about doing the right thing that turns out to be doing the right thing. It, you know, he does the honorable thing, or is motivated at first, probably by a desire to do the honorable thing, and then that turns into the right thing in kind of rom-com destiny terms, that this is a woman that he's discovering he's profoundly in love with, and maybe that was an intuition he had at the beginning, but didn't pay any heed to, and the baby is an excuse to do that now. I love the performances, not only of the two leads, um, and just to say quickly, like very often Anglo-American hybrids don't really work for me, because they tend to be either written by Americans trafficking and stereotypes about the British or vice versa. This one is appears to be a 50-50 writing partnership. And so very mild comedy about him being American and her being Irish in London is played beautifully and truly. I love the supporting performances. The brother-in-law to be is hysterically funny.
2: Yeah.
1: The husband of her annoying frenemy is hysterically understated and weird. I like that at the center of it, a, there's a good guy Rob Delaney, who shows us that men who do the right thing or are impelled to do the right thing and who aren't filled with a lot of trite darkness are just as mysterious as villainous men. And I like that. I like the fact that we didn't have to dig deep. He's just he he himself as a performer is so physically solid and steady. And I just thought that was kind of a premise, and it it couldn't be examined too far. But this show completely worked for me. Like you, Dana, I I watched it in a blur and wanted there to be more more and more. That's so interesting.
2: I find that to be a compelling argument that makes me reconsider and potentially recant my qualms about his character. You're right. He's like human ballast. He's like walking human ballast. He's just so steadying and solid and the men
1: and the men that I know that are like that are totally mysterious to me way more mysterious than the neurotic dark complaining selfish ones in fact they're quite explicable but those men I know who are big and solid and almost always if not always do the right thing that's a fucking mystery
3: Well, but it's not quite clear that either of them knows what the right thing is in this situation, which is something that I like, too. I mean, in some ways, it's a very old-fashioned premise for a show. It's a shotgun marriage. I got you pregnant, so I married you. I guess the reason that they don't even consider terminating the pregnancy is her age, right? That's talked about in Yeah, they talk about it. Essentially, she sort of thinks this may be my last chance to have a baby. I'll do it on my own or with... You know someone, and then she essentially offers his help as she explains, I think, to her father at one point because he is the person who wants to help. She says, It's not that I need a man, but I need help, and this is the person who wants to help me. And so, there are definite moments for me as a viewer where I think, What are these two people doing? This is just such poor de- life decision making, and yet, you know that is true of a lot of huge life decisions that we're ambivalent about them and we go through with them anyway.
1: Hmm. I want to make one very quick point before we move on, which is that what I found most touching about this show is that I do think that there's a style of comedy that's emanated from The Simpsons and 30 Rock, both of which are works of complete genius. Uh, And what I'm about to say doesn't detract from either, but they're both written... I mean, uh, Julia, you've pointed out that 30 Rock is kind of a live-action cartoon. I like that this thing was not a live-action cartoon at all it is utterly about the actual situation of these actual people and all the comedy flows from that and so it's not punchline driven it's really character driven it's just it's just lovely
2: no and i like their humorous candor there's a great moment where they've just met the brother character for the first time and it was sort of awkward and at the end she just asks him so did you like my brother and he was like did i like him and she's like yep and he's like no (laughs) (laughs) that's <laughs> like the, clo- <laughs> the end of the scene. It's just like a lovely little joke that's not, you know, it's not antic and it's not crazy and it doesn't involve invoking like aliens or Mickey Rourke or any of the <laughs> zany references that would fill yeah. a Simpsons yeah. episode or Thirty Rock. Is just like, yeah, sometimes people's brothers are weird. What are you going to do?
3: And but yet you you see that she and the brother like each other a lot and have mm-hmm. this very sick, dark sense of humor that you know yeah. they're just willing to go down any road together.
2: Yeah, and I do have to second Steve. Your praise for the performance of Mark Benar, who plays the husband of Sharon's frenemy. And I love how specific that character is. Like all Mm -hmm. of the characters, both the main characters, but even more so the supporting characters just feel extremely particular humans you might actually meet as opposed to broad types like the ditzy friend, her like angsty husband. You know, he's like this kind of intense e-cigarette smoking (laughs) furtive weirdo. And I loved him. And it's
1: beautifully underwritten and underplayed, just absolutely to perfection. It gave the actor a lot of room to take it where he wanted to go, and he just turned him into something really wonderful. Okay, the show is Catastrophe. It's a British import. You can now stream it on Amazon. Check it out. We loved it. We'd love to hear what you think about it at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have
2: We have one of your personal favorites today, Steve, Harry's. Harry's is the company that delivers a superior shave by delivering excellent razors to your mailbox for cheap. Their starter package is just $15, which includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or Foaming Shave Gel. And as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with the code CULTURE. Steve, I believe you are a Harry's user and partisan. Can you disclose whether you prefer the Shave Cream or the Foaming Shave Gel? share any other shaving experiences?
1: Oh, I go back and forth between foam and gel. I'm not really committed, but I do have a little Harry's anecdote if you'd like to hear. Hit me. Okay, so the other day I discovered I had too much to my horror that I had lost the handle to my Harry's shave kit upon which you attach these cartridge razors. And it hit me again how much I love this company because in the past when I lost the razor handle, it was always an excuse to switch brands because effectively what they do is the typical razor company sells you the elaborate handle and then you're locked in to keep buying these super, super overpriced shaving cartridges as a, you know, massive cash cow revenue stream for some distant oligopoly, you know, headquartered in Tortola and run by gangsters. Anyway, but um, (laughs) maybe not really, but no, in fact, I had lost this and it was horrific. I was like, the only thing in the world I wanted to do that morning was shave with my Harry's razor because I wasn't freaking overpaying for the cartridges and it wasn't an excuse to switch brands. In fact, I tripled down on my brand loyalty and I immediately went on the internet and bought another Harry's handle. This, time in a very elegant James Bondian gray. So um, I, uh, I'm laying it on a little thick, but only so I can shave it off later, Julia. <laughs> I, I do love the company and I love the product and it's done me nothing but right. So there you go.
2: All right. Well, if you want cheeks as smooth and Apple glowing is Steve Metcalf's. You should go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the code CULTURE with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, and enter coupon code CULTURE at checkout for $5 off the starter set. Start shaving smarter today. All right, Steve, what's next?
1: All right, moving on. Fare thee Well is a series of reunion concerts by The Grateful Dead that comes with a vow that this is in fact the end, the end of a rock band, an American institution, and a global cult. The Dead began as a Bay Area jug band and over decades became legendary more by dint of epic live performances than by any radio airplay and that by a wide margin with its overlay of will-o'-wisp vocals and space jam guitar lines. Theirs was a music that was somehow loose-limbed but very, very tight at the same time, trippy, completely singular blend of folk, blues, country, and eternally iterated and reiterated and deiterated guitar solos upon the demise of a band many people adore but equally many find utterly mystifying. We asked Slate resident deadhead
4: and Julia Turner lickspittle, John Swansburg to come on the show. (laughs) How's that for an introduction, John? Steve, you just talked about the dead in tones I would not have expected. That almost sounded reverent. Oh God, no! You want, to take, you want to take it again? <laughs> a retake! Oh my God.
1: God, God, Burn
4: it! Burn the take!
1: Oh, uh, John. Well, let me read you my first question, and then re- you can reassess. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not in the cult of the Grateful Dead by any stretch of the imagination. John Swansburg, is this a band only for true believers?
4: Yeah, I think so. I don't. I would never want to be in the position of proselytizing on behalf of this band to anyone else. I didn't w- want to be part of the cult myself. I've rejected it for many years, and then only after going to boarding school and having it be in the ether for three years did I finally have enough of it in my head that I just couldn't resist anymore, and I became a fan. But I've never really had any luck convincing anyone else to like it. You kind of have to... Find your way to it yourself. But have you
3: found friends that liked it? Has it become an underground community where you'll discover that someone liked it all along?
4: Oh, yeah. There are certain, like, shibboleths that, you know, where people will reveal uh, that they are dead fans. And then you can kind of have this great conversation with them and probe just how deep into the cult they've gone. And, you know, ask them about their favorite shows and favorite tracks. And I I tend to do that and then sort of put them on a spectrum between, like, casual fan who maybe listens to some of the, like, studio recordings, which, you know, I hold in in great uh, disregard because, you know, the Dead never did anything interesting in the studio. It was all live performance. Uh, And then people who are, you know, went to shows who are a little bit older than me and actually experienced the band and can talk about what that was like. And I always love picking people's brains about the uh, Following the Dead experience, which I missed out on. And then you have people who are, like, truly crazy. And I'm probably closer to that last (laughs) uh, poll who, like, who spend, like, a ton of time in the archive listening to shows and, like, fetishize not just specific nights on which the dead played but recordings of that night they can tell you like Mm. which audience Mm -hmm. recording from that 77 show at cornell is their favorite Uh, and that's like a level that's a level of of craziness that uh you know i think that's like the end point
1: it's like a freaking wine snob like telling you (laughs) from which slope the coat rotique precisely came from um it's insane absolutely insane to me but that's not the point i mean whether one likes the music or not they really are a great american institution and an abiding one and they were meaningful in the history of rock and roll so talk a little bit about precisely what it is about the music that finally you know overtook your uh good taste
4: (laughs) I think that what puts a lot of people off is the noodling. You know, you you tell people that you really love this dark star that you just found, and it's 25 minutes long, and they can't imagine that they would be listening to the same song that basically has two lyrics, but yet goes <laughs> sprawls sprawls for, for 25 minutes. I came to find the improvisation at the heart of that music-making really exciting, that, you know, at any given iteration of any given song is completely different. These guys were trying it uh, out in a different way every every night out. And they were out almost every night. I mean, they did this Mm -hmm. for 30 years. They toured at breakneck uh, pace. And so there's a real excitement for me. I think what I get most excited about is sort of the search for the perfect fill in the blank. And I have a set of songs that I really love. And All the Dead's Archive is basically available digitally now at archive.org. Uh, And so often during the day when I'm working on something, I'll just say, you know, maybe today will be the day that I find the perfect eyes of the world. And I will put on a a show from 72 uh, that I've never heard before that has that song on there. And I'll I'll patiently wait for the band to get to it. And it'll be a different eyes of the world than any other eyes of the world that I've ever heard. And sometimes it'll suck. Sometimes it'll be that one of those nights where Jerry forgot the words to eyes of the world. That happens kind of frequently. But every now and then you hear a transcendent version of a song that you kind of know in your bones, but you don't know know what the way they played it that night and the the excitement of discovering that is truly amazing and it's not something that I don't know like what other musical experience to compare it to like that's I don't have that experience with any other music that I like and I'm not into other jam bands like this the dead are sort of a singular thing for me I, I love their music I'm not a fish guy I'm not a String cheese incident guy, like I you know that it 's just about the dead, and I think partially it's because of the existence of that great historical archive and the ability to dive into this essentially infinite pool of music and see what you find
2: I want to kind of ask Stephen Dana how the dead fit into your growing up experiences I very briefly because mine is fairly boring I, I'm in like an exact contemporary of John's and I also went to a New England prep school though a different one and was like ugh the fish people and the dead people are not my people and I never capitulated so to Good me it signified like white cap jerks from my high school of whom perhaps you were one John except, mm-hmm. not a jerk a lovely <laughs> fellow no that was me uh, <laughs> yeah. and you know so in the tribal allegiance of music which I think still existed in, in my youth although I'm not sure that music has the same tribal quality today that it did when we were kids, like, that was just never my tribe. And the music I've heard, I, you know, some of it's good. It's not the kind of thing I'm super into, whatever. I have no, I have no, it's not anathema, but I don't love it. But I, but like, what did it mean in your youth, Dana and Steve? So I thought three things
1: in life were inevitable. I thought death taxes and a girl in a fleur-de-lis t-shirt and a grass skirt skipped dancing vacantly to the dead in the quad of every boarding school in America. And I turned out to be wrong. I went back to Exeter, my alma mater, to give a little talk, alma mater, I don't know, what alma mater, thank you, to give a little talk. And uh, the students there, I just was suddenly incredibly curious whether or not the various tribal groups and subgroups still existed. And the first one I asked them about was The Dead, and they were completely unmoved by the, any mention of The Grateful Dead. They said that's our parents' music, in some instances, our grandparents' music. It has no existence anymore. What struck me about The Dead when I was a kid was um, it was music that didn't transcend its tribal allegiances, to use Julia's phrase, at all. I mean, not at all. You, you, unlike, you could go down the rabbit hole with Springsteen or Bob Dylan or Neil Young or fill in the blank and uh, many people wouldn't follow you there, but they would have a song or two, or some of the music would mean something to someone else. I just think of the dead as tribal all the way down. And I think that has to have something to do with the quality of the songwriting, which I find low. And um, <laughs> there are two or three possible exceptions to that. But I, I I just, I mean, I will turn up the, I mean, there's scarcely a classic rock artist who i want for at least one or two cuts turn up the volume when they come on the radio and the dead is the exception as to the live shows john don't take this the wrong way but a dead live show to me is the oral equivalent of unrolling an infinite roll of wallpaper and then crawling along it off into eternity that sounds great.
4: <laughs>
1: I'm not offended. <laughs> as
4: long as it's beautiful psychedelic wallpaper. <laughs> well, okay.
1: Well, this re- uh, well, Dana, I've, I've got to. We got to hear your experience of the day.
3: Well, I mean, it sounds like I have something to contribute because I think I'm the only person among us who's ever been to a Dead show. I've been to three or four of them, and when I was listening to the three-hour set list on Spotify that John kindly made for us last night, like, which I'm
4: sure you all listen to,
3: I listened to parts of it. I think I might have just. I listened
2: to it for like an hour and a half, and I think it was just one. <laughs> <laughs> we can, can we share it with our listeners, John?
4: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I might want to make a couple updates because when I listened to it uh, last night after I made it for you guys, I realized I'd made some decisions that I regretted. I, the, the Fire in the Mountain, uh, the, the Scarlet right, began... John, you're
3: not allowed Sorry. to spend any more time on the set list.
2: <laughs> Slate needs your
4: talent All right, it's locked, elsewhere. it's locked. I can, I'll stand by it.
3: I love also that you annotated it so extensively so you could read through like a five-paragraph email about why these choices were made and the transition from this song to that song. But okay, so, so my history with them. Listening to that three-hour set list last night gave me sweet memories because although I myself was never a deadhead, I dated a deadhead in last year of college, first year of grad school, 88, 89, essentially the the sad simulacrum period you just referred to of the dead. Touch of Grey, I think, was a hit at that time or Mm -hmm. right around that time. And so they were touring a lot and sort of back in the news. And also I believe that a collaboration with... um, didn't Mickey Hart and and George Harrison collaborate on something there were sort of a lot of you know old hippies like coming back in the late yeah. 80s and and doing musical things and even though that music was never something I would put on for myself my ex's kind of endearing you know much like yours his, his endearing commitment to you know certain transitions in certain 73 winter garden shows on little cassette <laughs> tapes was just so adorable and I loved to make fun of him about it as I love to make fun of you about your your dead session um, so so there were those kind of sweet memories associated with it the shows Themselves, I mean. Okay, let's put it this way. I don't know how disclosing to be, but I've seen the dead high and not high, and they're a lot better high.
4: <laughs> <laughs> right. That was the old joke about about uh, Grateful Dead fans that like when the when the drugs wore off, that people were like, "This music sucks." <laughs> but I actually never listened to it while um, in a mind altered state. Like that's not my experience because I never went to the shows, and it's not, I'm not someone who sits around in like my own house like getting high so that I can listen to a archive.org set from. <laughs> You know, 1974 <laughs> that in Providence. Even better than
3: crawling across wallpaper.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's like not not the thing for me. I I, um, I understand why the music would probably be amazing in that state of mind. But that's I've never needed to sort of transport myself chemically in order to feel transported by the music. I, it just happens for me.
3: Well, it's interesting that they can be technically virtuosic at by moments. One of my listening notes from last night is like jazz, but boring. <laughs> 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 I mean, they can when they're singing in tune and their instruments are in tune with each other and Jerry remembers the words. They can hit moments of mu- true musical virtuosity, right? But to me, it's a kind of a boring virtuosity because the basic tune they're noodling on is not, you know, Miles Davis' So What? It's like some hillbilly greatest hits, you know, four chord song.
4: Yeah, it's true. Well, there's, not, there's not a lot of I feel like the complexity of the noodling I think doesn't rise to a certain level that like put it is, I think jazz fans find off-putting because it's not miles Davis it's not ornette Coleman who they did perform with but I don't know maybe I'm an unsophisticated listener but that doesn't bother me like when they do take those songs to places that I find interesting and surprising and I do love the noodling I think there's some people who like them despite the noodling I like them because of the the noodling and and where and not and the noodling does have purpose the way they stitch together, Two different songs is also a big part of what makes them exciting. Like, they often, a great set will basically have no breaks. They just, it is one continual tapestry. Of music. And maybe that's sort of what you were saying earlier, Julia, that like the first three songs I put in that playlist are three distinct songs, kind of, but they they don't stop between them. They, they play Help on the Way and then they play Slipknot and then they play Franklin's Tower. And the moment when Slipknot becomes Franklin's Tower makes me want to jump up and down. I recognize <laughs> that that is not the effect it has on everybody and that maybe I should be examined because it makes me feel that way. But it does not a feeling. I will
3: say, an endearing thing about live shows, even as someone who didn't really know their, their, their repertoire of songs that well, the excitement of hearing a song emerge from one of those endless space jams, right, and what's it going to be, and and the excitement of people around you that it might be some song that hasn't been paid, played in 20 years or something like that, I mean, that sort of gets you into the whole world of, you know, the, the Grateful Dead jargon, the Grateful Dead sort of, you know, insider, the shibboleths, as you say, you right. know, but that's also sort of part of what made Dead shows, at least in the late 80s, kind of scary, right, because, I mean, we haven't talked about Dead Heads very much, and that is a very strange and often, to me, off-putting aspect of this band. People that follow a band for 20 years. I mean, that just sort of seems like a magnet for the mentally ill in some ways.
4: Yeah. I mean, I like I said, I never quite experienced that, although I do, like I have a sort of romantic notion of where it started at least. Like I wish, I if I had a time machine, I would definitely want to go back to 68 and like go when they were like Ken Casey's house band and like see what that was like. But the sort of the, what it became in the 80s after the the band was sort of past its peak and it was no longer uh, kind of like beautiful hippie utopian roving uh, experiment across the American dreamscape and it was like much more fratty and,
3: and hippie burnouts and I mean, hippie really burnout some, yeah people who people had people lost who their lives the to it
4: yeah, yeah. That, that, like, the, I've seen that I mean even when you go now uh, not anymore I guess if they really have hung it up but when I would go to these post Jerry shows you would still see those burnouts and like that was like truly tragic it's one thing to have been been a burnout hippie who was who had been there in the 60s and 70s and it's 1985 but to see that in 2015 that's just it's truly sad because the magic is gone i mean particularly for someone like me who does love the jams like when jerry died the jams died i mean he was the jams to, i mean not to take anything away from the other guys who, who were also constantly um uh innovating and and they were all part of the, the puzzle but jerry was jerry he was the leader so once he was gone, it was gone.
1: But very quickly, talk a little bit about Bob Weir. We've he, you know he he obviously gets uh, nudged aside a little bit because Jerry Garcia is the godhead of the whole phenomenon. But Bob Weir was was critical to it as well. Yeah,
4: absolutely. There's actually a new documentary out about Weir that Netflix made that uh, I can't really recommend to anyone who doesn't share my. Uh, fascination with the band because it's not a great documentary, but I liked it in the sense that it did make a case for him in the important role that he played in the band. He was 16 when he met Jerry Garcia. I mean, he was the youngest member. He was sort of the heartthrob. I mean, it's not an attractive group of guys uh, that make up The Grateful Dead, but Weir sort of of had like uh, a kind of sexy quality about him. He also like was attracted to a different kind of Uh, Music than uh, I think Jerry was. Sometimes he his his song. uh, It's actually not his song, but the song that he performed. uh, Me and my uncle, sort of an outlaw country song that is. I think they the band performed more than any other song. It's one of my favorites. It's short. It's like it's rarely more than three and a half minutes. Uh, He often would open shows with his rendition of Chuck Berry's "Promised Land." Also. Short, you know, three or four minutes, and and those songs really helped punctuate and offer a, a sort of counterpoint to the long noodling, dark stars and playing in the bands, and um, you know he was a, a huge part of it, and and you know he also a lot of people attest to the fact that he was a great rhythm guitarist that Jerry couldn't have mm-hmm. done what he yeah. did if if Weir wasn't there, and and you really got to listen for that. It's not something that will jump out at you when you're listening to Jerry yeah. go off into space, but that Jerry himself would say, you know, that I was that was made possible by what Bob Weir was doing. Yeah, I
1: agree. Anyway, so John Swansburg is not just Julia Turner's lickspittle; they call him at least a deputy editor of the whole enterprise known as Slate. He is a, a deadhead and a great guest on this program.
4: John, thank you so much for coming on. It was really a pleasure to talk about those. My pleasure. Anytime, I will. Anytime you want to talk about the dead, I'm your man.
2: Uh, we will. We will share John's painstakingly crafted playlist and possibly even his notes about it with our listeners on our show page and our Facebook page. Yeah, and I
1: and I should say also that this is a subject about which there have to be an amazing diversity of opinions some of them deeply held and even uh, angry so come to <laughs> facebook.com slash and tell us what you think of the dead all right well now is the moment in our show where we talk about our other sponsor julia turner what do we have
2: this episode of Slate's Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile app developer, check out Braintree. Braintree is the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, and Living Social. Braintree has made the payment experiences in these apps seamless, and now you can add a similar experience to your own app. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree gives you a full-stack payment solution, support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single integration across all platforms, with superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next?
1: Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Did those of us condemned to a commonplace life, did we lack some elemental ingredient of genius or fame, or did we just settle for ordinary happiness too soon? This, if I read it right, is the animating theme behind Leon Nafak's wonderful new memoir, The Next Next Level, a story of rap, friendship, and almost giving up. Nafak is a columnist for Slate now and was a reporter for the Boston Globe Ideas section. Leon, I, we consider you a very close friend of the program for reasons I couldn't put my finger on, but I'm confident enough. welcome to the show.
5: <laughs> Thank you so much for
1: having me on. Your book follows along with your own obsession with a childhood acquaintance, an aspiring rapper who goes by the handle Juicebox, who, even though he's serially humiliated at the hands of relatively indifferent fans and very definitely indifferent music business, refuses to settle for anything less than a full rap star apotheosis. Why don't you lead us into the discussion a little bit by telling us how you first discovered Juicebox, what that encounter was like?
5: So I crossed paths with him thanks to summer camp, where I met a guy who was close friends with him in Milwaukee. I grew up outside of Chicago, and so a bunch of people from the Midwest would come to the summer camp, and this friend of mine that I made there asked me you know, a few months after camp, would I be able to set up a show for him and his band? Uh, and then the last minute he asked me, hey, by the way, like, could I bring this guy who I'm friends with, who is a rapper, and could he play on the set as well? And I said, sure, of course. And so Juicebox played, uh, and he sort of blew everyone's mind that was there. you know, Seeing him uh, on stage, really just burned itself into my memory and he's been doing some version of that ever since um you know he's a rapper um but he has grown up in a in a punk context um he's played you know most of his career has been spent playing basement shows uh with noise bands and other kinds of experimental uh, musicians and so he's always sort of tried to toe the line between difficult and confrontational uh music and pop uh, and that's sort of the, mm-hmm. the line that he's been trying to ride ever since.
1: Okay, will you pick out a track for us to um, sample for our listeners?
5: Yeah, so there's a there's a great song on his first album called I Don't Want to Go Into the Darkness. The song's called Like a Renegade. Uh, it sort of lays out his mission statement. It sounds a little bit like the Beastie Boys, and uh, it, it sort of explains his trials and tribulations as a, as a road warrior.
2: I got a hole in my life that I can't escape, and now I'm living on the run like a renegade. Try to tell Buster and- I read your whole book, Leon, without listening to a note of music. So that is my actual sonic introduction to Juice sauce. It sounds...
3: You conjured it well. It sounds about like what I expected. It's good to hear. <laughs> Something that really is salient in the persona that you describe him as, as creating on stage, both on stage and in his life and in his itinerant lifestyle seems like it's, it's a, in some ways a very anti-rap persona because he presents himself as vulnerable and struggling and that's a lot of what his songs are about. Although he also talks, of course, about his virtuosity and there's there's some boasts in there. But this is really very confessional rap.
5: Yeah, in a way, I think, like, rap has caught up to him a little bit because, you know, now every rapper, because of Drake, is, is trying to be vulnerable.
2: So one reason I will say, Leon, why I was not super compelled to go listen to Juicebox immediately upon reading your book is that your book is terrific and fascinating and wonderful to read and I would argue is much more about you than it is about Juicebox in ways that I think are really interesting and provocative. And I think the question that puzzles you and that pulls you into this work and certainly pulled me in as a reader is the question of what drives people to strive to achieve creative greatness and what causes people who maybe at one point entertain the notion that they might want to do such a thing to give up on that dream or to settle into some some different life. And through the course of the book, you talk about a couple of different schema that you've had over the course of your life as you puzzle through this question. Like, is there a fundamental difference in the world? Is the world split between critics and geniuses in the same way that it's split between cat people and dog people and Beatles fans and Stones fans? Can you talk a little bit about that framework and sort of how you thought about that going into writing this book and how the writing of the book maybe changed it?
5: Yeah. So I just think artists are different than the rest of us. I think what they devote their lives to is fundamentally distinct from, you know, what the rest of us who have jobs and stable families and have, have inside of us. The artists, we kind of all revolve around them. They push our culture forward and they're for us to interpret and they're there to sort of expand our minds. And so I think, you know, so you mentioned this distinction between genius and critic uh, that runs through the book. It's something that my friends and I came up with in college. Um, It's kind of like a game, uh, genius critic. We use those words not sort of in the traditional sense, I guess. So when we said critic, we we didn't mean necessarily someone who is an art critic or a music critic. It's basically the distinction breaks down to geniuses are these almost magical beings who can sort of fall through the world on their own terms. And they are not bound by self-consciousness they're authentic in a way that the rest of us simply can't be so geniuses are sort of they're not they're not plagued by a sort of self-awareness I guess that that, that maybe hold, that holds the rest of us back
2: I had a very similar game in college called Bird Horse Muffin that I can explain to you at some point <laughs> but uh, I'll let you continue
3: <laughs> I have a question though mm. about this about that dyad which you frame in other ways there's a similar so something that you talk about throughout the book about dancing and your own resistance to dancing and how you've always wished that you could be a person who could lose yourself in mm-hmm. this collective gyration but you just feel silly doing it there's some sort of great line about I can't let the people near me imagine me having sex which is essentially what Claude dancing is, right? You're sort of like creating the suggestion of like what your, you know, your sexy self might be. And it seems like Juicebox himself resisted being put in the category of, you know, this more someone who is more sort of primarily able to express themselves through their body. And you have some conversations with him where he bristles at the notion of having to embody that for you or for listeners in general.
5: Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that could have changed my mind uh, over the course of writing the book was I realized at some point that like it's not strictly a compliment to say someone's a genius, you know, in, in terms of this schema. Like, you're saying that they're sort of primitive in a way. Like, that's like the worst thing you can say about it. Like, they can't understand their own significance.
1: Among the more fascinating moments in your book, Leon, is when you wonder right at the beginning whether or not you may have destroyed him. How did you think you might have?
3: Well, so
5: he moved to New York City, maybe temporarily, maybe not, in the fall of 13, which is when we started hanging out. He had the money to move because he had recorded a jingle for a big corporation that paid him like eight grand or something that he could use to pay for rent and you know he's never really had a steady job in his life. he never really had a bedroom that he could call his own he was always subletting or staying on people's couches or he was touring you know he's- he's toured I don't know how you'd break it down in terms of like the percentage of his life <laughs> that he has spent on the road, but it's definitely where he feels most at home and so when he got here, you know, at a certain point he, he decided that he wanted to stay. He asked me if, you know, if you hear of anything in terms of part-time job opportunities that I could use to like A, get my record mastered and B, like try to establish a more stable existence for myself here, please let me know. And and I did, and and, and I ended up helping him get hooked up with a with a job. And you know, it was a sort of a naive thought, like, did I destroy you by getting you a job? Because as a few people who've read the book have pointed out, there's not like an obvious binary between like economic suffering and creative ability, obviously. But it did occur to me that like there was a certain angst panic uh, sort of at the heart of, of his music that was pretty inextricably uh, tied to his precarious lifestyle. And so I wondered if having achieved a, a more calm and, and comfortable life, some of that would, would go away.
2: Yeah, so I'm curious, I mean, we started to talk about this a little bit before, but so where did you land at the end of the book? You know, you finished it, you wrote it. How did the process of writing it complicate your views of what it means to be an artist and to keep fighting to be an artist?
5: Well, in terms of the genius critic thing, not to come back to that too much, but I sort of started to see him as both, because I didn't appreciate until we sort of had all these like many hour-long conversations just how deliberate he is in terms of what he puts out there and, and, and kind of what cultural continuum he wants to be part of. He has like the most encyclopedic knowledge of music of anyone I've ever met. And that kind of made me see him a little differently than, you know, he's he's not a wild animal. He's a, he's a considered and careful craftsman. So yeah, I think it made me realize that there's a space in between artist and, you know, the sort of the freewheeling shooting star and like the almost workmanlike approach to uh, creating something that I, I identify with more. Like as a journalist, you know, I I remember there was like, I read a story about like Lester Bangs, like going out on a stage and typing an article. And that was just ridiculous. Cause like, you're not a rock star. You're as a writer, you're a, you're by yourself. You're, you're doing something quiet and thoughtful. <laughs> and those two things don't really go together, but writing the book and getting to know him better kind of made me kind of convinced me that the binary is a little bit less clear than I than I have grown up thinking it was this is
1: a wonderful book it's called the next next level the story of rap friendship and almost giving up by Leon Nafak Leon thank you so much for coming on the show but you are not done yet will you stick (laughs) around and endorse
5: yes I would love to I'd be very honored to
1: but before we endorse actually let's hear from our other other sponsor Julia Turner what do we have
2: We are totally delighted this week to be sponsored by The Great Courses, which offers engaging courses presented by top professors and experts. This is a super fun way to keep learning, and I think our listeners, like us, are people who are endlessly curious about the world and want to know more about it, so I think it is a great fit for our program. One course in particular that they're offering a special deal for our listeners for is called The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking, which they developed in partnership with the Culinary Institute of America. And what's super cool about this course, which I was checking out over the weekend, and is that it is not about like new flash recipes or specific hip trends you should try. It's like the foundational basics, the thing that I feel every time I go into a kitchen where I'm like, I wish I just knew about sauces or I wish I just had like the basics of roasting meat down. They kind of walk you through like the finer principles of how to work with ingredients and how to use basic techniques and methods so that you have a foundation from which to experiment. So the course, which is 24 short lectures supplemented with great visual materials, show you how to transform everyday ingredients into restaurant-quality dishes, how to create delicious meals for both casual weekday dinners and large holiday celebrations, how to work with unique tastes and ingredients to expand your palate, how to avoid spending money on expensive meals or unhealthy fast food, by showing you the basics of roasting, grilling, poaching, stir-frying, broths and sauces, meat and seafood, herbs and spices, pastas and grains. They kind of walk you through everything you might want to know. So again, that's The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking. And The Great Courses has a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, among them Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking, for up to 80% off the original price. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash culture. That's thegreatcourses.com slash culture. Steve, I think we are finally almost ready to endorse, although I believe we have two quick corrections to issue before we do. Is that right, Dana?
3: Yes, and they both come from me, and they're both very embarrassing. They're embarrassing in a way because they're so small, but they're such dumb things to have said. Anyway, so in our in our segment last week, Julie, you weren't here, but we discussed a Terence Rafferty article about the decline of the actor and his theory that American actors have fallen behind in the global race. And that British oh, I listened. I was totally Team Dana. I was cheering you on. Oh, from good. My, I'm from very my glad minivan. To hear that. Yeah. So I got so impassioned with my Team Dana argument that this was in fact a bogus. Trend piece, and that I could think of lots of counterexamples. That I made a couple of just basically mistakes of my brain moving faster than my tongue. So one was that in my defense of Jesse Eisenberg, who I know Julia also loves and shares my crush on, um, who was one of the actors that I listed, Steve as as a counter argument to, to Terrence Rafferty's claim, I said that he's going to appear as a villain in a new Marvel movie. In the context of saying that he does lots of dark roles and he likes to take on. Unappealing characters, basically. And I was wrong. He's going to play Lex Luthor in Superman, which is, of course, DC, not Marvel. And if I had really thought that through and thought, who is he playing exactly? I would have probably remembered that Superman is a DC character, not Marvel. But maybe not. I can't guarantee it. Anyway, I take it back. He's going to play Lex Luthor in uh, in the upcoming Superman movie. Um, And the other one is really embarrassing because it's an actor that I greatly admire and have written on extensively and have actually met, uh, who is Michael B. Jordan, the star of Fruitvale Station, who also appeared in The Wire. And uh, I think I called him Michael B. Douglas. (laughs) I mixed him up Mm -hmm. with the other famous Michael that he shares a name with. I blame famous people named Michael for confusing me. I could just have easily have called him Michael B. Jackson in my rush to, uh, to, to contradict your argument, Steve. But, of course, he is Michael B. Jordan, not Michael B. Douglas. And he's great. All right. Well, we stand corrected. Now we endorse.
2: That we do. All right, Dana, what do you have?
3: You know what, in honor of John Swansburg and his wonderful Grateful Dead playlist that we all slogged dutifully through as far as we could get, I'm going to do two small Grateful Dead-related endorsements today, although neither of them are directly related to the Grateful Dead. They're cultural products that, that I know about because of the Grateful Dead. Um, the first one is the cover of the song Morning Dew, which is a, a Grateful Dead classic, although I don't believe they wrote it. I think it's a, it's a folk rock song that they kind of adapted and made one of their signature performance songs. But the performance is not by them. It's by the German, I guess, punk band? Einsturz den Neubotten? Am I saying that right? <laughs>
2: Do you guys
3: dene <laughs> and their album wait, let me read this for our German listeners. And of course their nineteen eighty seven album Fumpf auf der oben offenen Richterskala.
2: Isn't
1: Fumf This is the most four? Dana Stevens has ever <laughs> turned me on. That's like
2: one of the only German words I know, but doesn't Fumpf the, the number four?
3: Is
1: I'm it, gonna go with five.
3: I was gonna say oh, five. As yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I think it's the number. Yeah, five. four is fear. Well, because... I know what "In de means. It means uh, something like broken down and built again. That's the name of this this '80s German, I guess, sort of noise punk, screamy yeah, band. Cra- they're kraut
1: rock. Like, aren't they the classic era of of krautrock? Maybe,
3: but they're not Prague and noodley. They're more like that's short, true. screamy songs, right? And uh, and they do a cover of "Morning Dew" that's really incredible, and it's a great sort of psych yourself out to go out for the night kind of song. It's that kind of song. You know, you put wow. it on and you just want to put on a thick layer of mascara and just go do the kind of dancing that Leon Nafak (laughs) does not dare to do. (laughs) So that's one, and that will maybe be our outro song. Who knows if I luck out with our producer, Anne (laughs) Hefferman. And then my other brief Grateful Dead-related endorsement is, I believe, the last episode of Freaks and Geeks. It's the Grateful Dead episode. If you're a Freaks and Geeks fan, you know that each episode essentially has a pop artist of the time, usually of the time, um, that provides most of the music for, for that show. So there's the Elton John episode and uh, I can't remember who some of the other artists are. There's the Who episode. So the final episode of Freaks and Geeks, at least the last one that aired, um, which involves the Grateful Dead prominently and the idea of maybe going to follow the dead, it's all about the album American Beauty and there's a wonderful scene where Linda Cardellini's character puts on American Beauty and twirls around a room and just gets really into the album and it's really great and the way that it's sort of used in the very final scene will just make you cry. It's just the best use of the album American Beauty and it'll always, to me, be tied to that episode of Freaks and Geeks.
1: Wow, Dana Stevens lunging for the genius critic brass ring for her endorsement, <laughs> and and missing badly, I should say. But <laughs> no, lovely. Um, Julia Turner, what do you have?
2: I would like to recommend a refreshing quaff for my endorsement today. Uh, there, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> a refreshing quaff. <coif. laughs> my oh, God. <laughs> right. Look, I'm just, I, I'm just trying to prepare you guys for how refreshing this coif is going to be. <laughs>
3: um,
2: so in uh, some recent issue of New York Magazine, I forget which one, they have a recipe for what they call amusingly nose-to-tail lemonade, which basically means putting an entire lemon in the blender and drinking the blended results of lemon, including the peel. This is freaking delicious. It never occurred to me to do this, but basically you... Chop up a lemon. You cut off like the nubby ends, which like affects the pith to juice ratio a little bit to cut it down from what a truly whole lemon would be. But then you basically just throw these lemons in the blender. Seeds and all. You do de seed them, so it's not like as pure and easy as it seems. Like just literally throw the thing in there. So you de seed them. You cut off the ends, but other than that, it's just the whole lemon. A little ice. Very small amount of sugar. A little bit of water to cover it all up, and then you just pulverize it. And you what results is. Something that tastes like kind of the platonic ideal of Italian ice and Mm. you get this like oily tang of lemon zest rather than lemon juice, that kind of like oily burn in the back of your throat, which I love all beverages that have like cayenne or ginger. I love a beverage that like stings a little bit going down. And so this is like lemonade with bite And you can adjust the sugar to your liking, adjust the ice level to your liking to make it kind of slushier or juicier as you see fit. But this is – I, like, never want to drink normal lemonade again. This is so excellent. So I will Mm. post the recipe on our show page. But if you have access to a high-powered blender, make this forthwith.
1: Mm. Fantastic. I mean, I now think all of humanity divides not into Genius Critic but into Refreshing Coif (laughs) or Oily Tang.
2: (laughs) But with this, you can have both.
1: But with this, you can have both. This is the – yeah, exactly. The fill in the blank of um, summer beverages. Leon, uh, what do you
5: have? So I have a movie that I watched over the weekend. The new film by Andrew Bajalski, Results, which I know Dana reviewed and, and liked. So it's it's about a guy who came into some money through sort of vague circumstances, and he is living in this unfurnished mansion uh, in Austin, Texas, uh, and he wants to get in shape. And so he meets these two trainers, who are one of whom is the is the head of a of a gym. And he has big dreams for expanding and uh, promoting his lifestyle philosophy. Uh, and the other is is one of his employees, uh, who's sort of more amb- more ambivalent about uh, the truth of his gospel. Um, and so this 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 rich character kind of becomes the glue between the employee and uh, and the and the boss. And you get this love triangle between the three of them that is just rendered in these very like. Careful half tones you never really can tell how anyone really feels until suddenly you really do, so there's like a real ambivalence like there's five different kinds of ambivalences in this movie, and I feel like that's always a really hard thing to to show on film It, it reminded me of, of real life, I guess where you don't know how you feel until you really until you're really sure
1: <laughs> and say the name of the movie again results oh my god, I am completely uh, i 'm all in on that. All right. Well, this week, my endorsement is actually just a bunch of articles about the Greek crisis. It's been showing up in my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed that there's a pretty widespread misapprehension about the exact nature of the Grexit, the Greek exit from the possible exit from the euro, which now looks like it might not happen, and the Greek financial crisis vis-a-vis Germany. And um, I've been looking for correctives to it because, in fact, this is not a story of a northern Interdirected, disciplined economy Doing things incredibly well And by the book In a southern, ill-disciplined, corrupt uh, government Squandering all the benefits of it And this was the, you know, sort of The result of the euro Of currency zone Of the united currency zone Which is that these you know, highly productive and relatively honest economies were basically acting as welfare guardians for less successful economies. So, for example, Spain, Italy, and then the supposedly worst offender, Greece. This is a totally false narrative. And in fact, Germany's supposed discipline is built upon a structural, a necessary and structural, structural indiscipline among these other economies in a way that I think average lay people just don't really get. And so even though there is a somewhat predictable and I think totally justified lefty backlash against uh, a continued austerity for Greece and this latest deal is an utter joke and it's going to result only in worse outcomes. Nonetheless, there's a lack of substance to the critique and some people have tried to um, correct for that. Uh, The most uh, startling, I thought, in some ways example is the editorial, Greece's brutal creditors have demolished the Eurozone project that appeared in that lefty rag of uh, the financial times authored by Wolfgang Munchau, who's an incredibly talented uh, economic pundit, but there are others that we'll link to as well. I think it's important to do background reading on this, that, that there is a structural reason that Greek is going to continue to fail in ways that only in debt it more and only burden its economy more so that paying back the debts only becomes progressively more impossible. Um, So I think that these together form a a, a critical counter-narrative to the idea of Germany as disciplined and Greece as somehow um, a a slob in need of uh, a good talking to. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Leon, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Um, You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albracht and Marissa Vichy. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gabfest Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And if you're looking for a quick new listen, you should definitely try out The Moment with Brian Koppelman. This week, he interviews Starly Kine, host of the highly popular podcast Mystery Show. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon.
3: Walk me out.